Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia. And today, what a surprise, we have another amazing guest on the show. We've got Dr. Jared McKenna, who's a lot of things, including very, very good at opening lines on Twitter. He's also a reproductive biologist. So welcome to the show, Dr. Jared. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. It's already a pleasure. Now, first question, hopefully an easy one. What is your job? <laughs> so you got it correct. So that's that's a good start. I am a reproductive biologist. And what that means is that I, I study human reproduction, in particular female reproduction. And specifically, that's early pregnancy and menstruation, but not in people. Instead, I study it in a menstruating species of mouse, which is the only rodent in the world to actually have a menstrual cycle. So it's very rare, very uh, sort of niche research, but it's very, very important stuff and very, very cool. And I think a lot of us can agree that it is very important. There's a lot of questions, though, that naturally arise. I imagine you get asked quite regularly, in fact. So we'll, we'll start with... Why is there only one menstruating mouse? Like, what happened in that mouse's life? Or like, not its life individually, but over evolutionary life. Over its evolutionary life to be like, you are the mouse of choice. You get the joy. That's a great question, and the answer is we don't know. <laughs> we're, we're, we'll happily admit that we don't really know that yet. There's a couple of theories about why it's evolved in different species. We can't really figure out why yet that it's evolved in this species of mouse but we're lucky enough to be able to use them to sort of to study but yeah it's weird that you think of a mouse having a menstrual cycle (laughs) because if you think of it in like a predatory prey situation or scenario the mouse is essentially leading like a little trail of where it was and where it is so it doesn't really seem like a very good idea to have one because you would probably get preyed on quite a lot and it doesn't really seem to make sense, but apparently they've got one. <laughs> we're pretty sure they've got one. And yeah, we're still, we've, we've got a couple of papers that are out there right now with some other theories on why it's evolved, sort of based on hormones and, and things like that. But yeah, at the moment, we still don't really know. Because <laughs> it's not really like menstruation. I'm going to assume it's different for a mouse, but... It's not like it's fun. It is not fun, yes. And it's not fun for the mice either. That was one of the, uh, one of the studies that our lab has actually come out and published, I think it was a, uh, last year, that the spiny mouse is the name, by the way, I should have mentioned that earlier, the Egyptian spiny mouse. They actually do experience PMS-like symptoms. So they do sort of go through not just the actual menstruation, but the actual sort of emotional side of things. And the the researchers managed to show that they increased their food intake over that period that they did menstruate. They were more stressful and more anxious and more irritable. So it's quite similar in that regard. But yeah, there are little little differences between the cycles of a, of a human and, and a mouse. But they're very, very, very similar in a lot of ways, which is really going to help out with um, female reproductive research in the future. 
And that is fantastic that it's available, but the poor little buggers, like they got the whole package and they can't go to the supermarket and buy chocolate. They can't do it. <laughs> they can't do it, which is such a shame. They got shortchanged and they can't have like little hot water bottles. Yeah, no, none of that, unfortunately. We, we haven't come up with ideas on how to treat them for that yet. I'm sure they'd appreciate it. We have a lot of appreciative mouse mice. Well, we're very appreciative of them. We'll get lots of scratches and lots of cuddles. <laughs> I realise we haven't covered like a very basic concept, and that is what is menstruation? Are you able to define it for us? Sure, yeah. So menstruation essentially is the build-up of your uterus lining so the the superficial layer of your uterus builds up over your over the menstrual cycle and when there's no embryo they're ready to implant that lining actually sheds so if the embryo was there to implant it would go straight in and you wouldn't have that shedding or you wouldn't have the menstruation per se so but in the sort of absence of a pregnancy that all that tissue will sort of shed itself at the end of the cycle so that's what happens in all menstrual species, and that's what sort of uniquely separates a menstrual species from an estrous species, where if there's no embryo to implant, that uterine lining isn't shed at all. It's sort of just maintained or it's, it's resorbed. So they don't shed it at all. They sort of resorb it and sort of recycle everything that was grown. So two different strategies, and humans and the spiny mouse are lucky enough to uh, <laughs> have evolved to have menstrual cycles instead. Right. Yeah. And then I guess an alternative would have been eggs. Like where do eggs fit in? Like a chicken's egg. A chicken's egg. <laughs> so it's sort of another difference between the menstrual and estrous cycle is that what dictates or what controls ovulation so you think of a lot of animals in the wild, they've got seasons, you know, they come into sort of breeding season and then they'll mate and then they will have, you know, a period where they're pregnant and then they'll raise their young in like springtime and summer so that they've got optimum chance to grow and that sort of thing. So a lot of animals can be induced to ovulate. So mating itself can actually induce an animal to ovulate the amount of sunlight. So that plays a lot of time in the seasonality of estrus cycles. And so things like that don't really have an effect in a menstrual cycle. So they're very, very minorly influenced by sort of the external factors like light and heat and, and mating and things like that. So in menstrual species like the spiny mouse and humans will ovulate pretty much bang in the middle of the cycle. If that egg's fertilized and becomes the embryo, then that uterine lining is ready to go, ready to accept it, ready to get pregnant. If the embryo either is unhealthy and the uterus is able to detect that, or there wasn't an embryo, like the egg didn't get fertilized at all, then that lining would shed and then you would have menstruation. It seems like a lot of energy to go through on a cyclical basis, just on the off chance. Yes, it really, it really is. And that sort of in a way, it's sort of a con of having the men a menstrual cycle as well. So it's you're expending a lot of energy growing and shedding it and growing and shedding and growing and shedding all the time. So there's a weird sort of evolutionary term. You don't, you don't want to say that you're lucky enough, but it's animals that have evolved to have menstrual cycles are able to, or they can afford to menstruate because they've 
either sitting quite high on the food chain, you know, they don't have predators, they've got really good environments. So in a way they've evolved to be able to afford to sort of shed their lining and that sort of thing. It's a weird word to use, but it's also a theory out there. Look, I'll take any little silver lining we can find. That's a good one. (laughs) Consider yourself lucky uh, is apparently an evolution stance on that. (laughs) Yeah, okay. I I can just imagine some wonderful cartoons. (laughs) communicating that so you're using these lovely little egyptian spiny mice to do investigations into like what kind of things are you hoping to solve with their assistance so there's a lot of sort of menstrual disorders out there that you can have or or women can experience in their lifetime so there's sort of like a gynecological route that you can go and and study maybe the prevalence of something, maybe what causes that, If let's say endometriosis or heavy menstrual bleeding uh, can be very common. Maybe we can find out what causes that in the spiny mouse, for example, and then we can go with that theory or that gene, for example, and go and look at that in humans. And hopefully it's the same one. And then we can devise these treatments for something like heavy menstrual bleeding or, or, or endometriosis. Another route is more so what I looked at during my PhD was the early pregnancy side of things. So we don't actually know a lot about how the embryo implants into the uterus in people because we've never seen it. And I'm sure you can imagine it's very, very hard to sort of get that type of tissue and and actually look at it under the microscope because it's very rare that someone would want to donate their tissue is you know only a, a week after they've ovulated or you've got to be very very lucky to sort of catch it in that window so it's we, we actually don't know how exactly the embryo implants so we're hoping because we've got this little mouse that might be able to sort of give us an idea of how an embryo would implant in humans as well because we know how it happens in gorillas and chimpanzees who have menstrual cycles and they're very closely related to us but using gorillas and chimpanzees in medical research, you could imagine, has got its flaws. Quite big animals, quite strong animals. There's a lot of ethical and moral issues of using them. So it's a lot easier to use a mouse. And if a mouse sort of replicates what we see in gorillas and chimpanzees, it's very likely that it could replicate what's happening in humans. So things like how the embryo implants, we're, we're really trying to find out. And also quite a common condition in pregnancy is preeclampsia which is sort of high blood pressure during pregnancy, which can ultimately be fatal for either the growing baby or the mother. And it only presents quite about halfway through or maybe a third of the way through pregnancy, whereas the actual causes of preeclampsia are likely happening a lot earlier. So maybe if we can sort of catch them earlier, then we can prevent a lot of these miscarriages and and deaths as a result so there's lots of different sort of reproductive issues we think that the spiny mouse can help out with the way you're talking about it it sounds like we haven't been using this mouse for very long yeah that's right i mean we only discovered that this mouse had a menstrual cycle in 2017 so it's only been four years really and We've been using, you know, laboratory mice for over 100 years or maybe 200 years. So it's very, very, very new in terms of sort of a laboratory animal. So we don't really know a lot about it. So everything that we're sort of coming out with now study-wise is quite 
fundamental or it's very sort of new and it seems quite basic, but we need to know those basic things before we can do something complex like solving preeclampsia. We need to know, you know, what, what are their hormones doing? Do they have the same levels of estrogen and progesterone, for example, during pregnancy as humans? We don't know. And things like that, we really need to find out before we start tackling the big stuff. So four years since that discovery hasn't been a lot of time, but we've put in a lot of work already and we're, and we're finding out quite a lot. So the future is looking bright for spiny mouse research. That is so recent. It is very recent. <laughs> but how was the mouse discovered? Well, they actually came into, well, they were used initially in something completely separate. So they were used in studies of kidney function and renal, renal issues because being a desert species, they've got very highly functioning kidneys so they can concentrate urine very well and they can retain water a lot. So they were brought in initially for that. And they've also got another kind of weird facet of their reproductive biology is that they give birth to what's called precocial young. So the alternative is um, altricial, so essentially developed and undeveloped young. So humans, for example, have precocial young, so they're quite well developed. All the organs have developed, whereas altricial young, you can think of normal mice. You know, they're tiny, tiny little things. They're, they're tiny and pink and their eyes haven't really developed. They still, the organs are still growing, whereas the spiny mouse gives birth to, to babies that are essentially can eat solid food the next day, which is pretty incredible to think. So they were initially looking at studies and on how that happened and how those babies sort of grow throughout the pregnancy and, you know, what genes are on and off and what's regulating them and what's making them grow so quickly. And then what we wanted to do was to set this mouse up really as a model for, well, there's a, a technique called making an animal pseudo-pregnant. So you can essentially trick the body into thinking that they're pregnant. So they can show the hormonal signs and the tissue look, acts as if it was pregnant up to a certain stage, of course. And you can't do that in a menstrual species. It's just impossible. So they tried to make the spiny mouse pseudo-pregnant and they couldn't. So one of those methods I talked about earlier about making an animal ovulate is, in, is you can induce them by mating. So what you can do is you can essentially flush the vagina of the mouse with saline and just a very, very tiny plastic syringe. That alone is enough to either make the mouse ovulate or think that it's pregnant. So the researcher that was doing this in the spiny mouse did exactly that and withdrew the syringe and noticed that there was blood in it. So first thoughts are, oh my God, what have I done? I've hurt this mouse. Oh my God, you know, get the supervisors, get the animal technicians and everybody down. They all had a go with different mice and they all came back with the same conclusion. Like, oh my goodness, I think this mouse has a menstrual cycle. It's one of those weird accidental discoveries in science. <laughs> and then it happened so recently. Like that's kind of exciting because I think you know, even though we all know that science is happening and it's alive and it's not just what's in textbooks, like it's really cool to know that something so fundamental about a species that was already being investigated was uncovered so recently. Yeah, it's pretty incredible because we, we think it was quite overlooked as well because, hey, they're a mouse, they're not going to have a menstrual cycle, don't be ridiculous. So if you go through all this sort of older literature about their reproduction, which goes back to really the 80s, there were sort of signs there that, you know, in hindsight, looking back, <laughs> we were we were kind of thinking, oh, that doesn't really make sense. 
they probably should have looked into that a bit more, but you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. We might have figured it out a little bit earlier, but we figured it out nonetheless. So moving forward, we've got a pretty pretty great little animal that we can work with. Even scientists make assumptions. Exactly. Scientists make mistakes, they make assumptions too. <laughs> okay, so back to the original script, try and bring it back in. What does an average day look like for you? An average day, right. Well, I mean, it's an average day is quite different now to what it was last year, <laughs> as I'm sure it is with everybody. But firstly, what I would really do is I'd go in and check on my mice, see how they're doing, maybe give them a little scratch or maybe some sneak them a little bit of carrot, which they love. And then I would go and get a very, very large coffee and almost a necessity and sort of research to have something to fuel you throughout the day. So my work doesn't really begin until about 8.30 or 9, but I sort of, you know, do emails and start planning the day, things like that at about 7.30. So once I actually start my lab work, that could be anything from freezing sperm, sort of cutting through sections of uterus or ovaries and staining them pretty colors to see the structures inside and how they're changing over the over the mouse's menstrual cycle for example and then it could be anything from or either teaching students about everything that I just described there doing a lot of marking student presentations papers or writing papers of my own which really takes up a lot more of my time than I thought thought it would I thought it would be 12 hours a day in the lab, but really it's about half that. And the other half is they're writing papers and planning experiments and figuring out what went wrong and what to do next. So it's kind of a mix of mix of emails and writing admin kind of boring stuff, but then some cool sciencey stuff thrown in there, you know, playing with some liquid nitrogen and pretty fluorescent dyes and teaching students. So it's quite a diverse day. How does that work during lockdown? Yes. And that is the, uh, <laughs> that's the main difference there with this year and last year. So a lot of the teaching anyway has had to go online. And depending on what lockdown we're in, you know, what stage and what restrictions there are, I might be allowed to go in and do in-person lab demonstrations. Otherwise, we have to postpone those until we're allowed to go back on site. And some of the research can continue. Just depends sort of how time sensitive it is if you're in the middle of something of a treatment that lasts a week for example then you've got to go in and do that otherwise we're wasting animals we're wasting money we're wasting time so that's why i sort of laughed a little bit at a average day because every every day seems to be pretty different with different lockdowns so constantly changing but we're constantly adapting which is good and that is definitely a skill of the modern day yes a necessary one but the important thing is that even during like the most lockdown-y of lockdowns, the mice are getting looked after. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> they are getting their carrots. <laughs> and hopefully the occasional scratch. Yeah, of course. So you've sort of touched on a lot of things that I think could be required skills in this job, but what do you identify as like the key skills you need to be able to do this kind of research? Well, yeah, I touched on sort of adaptability. That's something that's pretty critical in this world right now. But a career in, in STEM or just science in general, really, you've got to have a lot of patience, a lot of patience and a lot of determination. I think those are pretty much the most critical things that you could develop. You don't have to be the smartest kid in class. You definitely don't. You just need to be able to put in that time and effort and be able to 
sort of deal with the uh, a lot of setbacks and failures that you uh, will inevitably come across in science. So if you can deal with those, come back and try again, then you, you're going to do great. Because <laughs> don't get me wrong, I definitely thought about quitting and becoming a pastry chef many times during my PhD. Thankfully, I didn't. <laughs> I ended up finishing eventually, which I'm really happy about. So I think that's definitely down to sort of improving my patience and getting used to or being able to deal with setbacks and failures. So patience, determination, and adaptability, I think would be my, my top three. They'd look good on a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. Have you got any words of wisdom for anyone who might be going through a PhD and things are just not going right? Things are not going right. You know, because they don't, because it's a PhD. Yeah. Have you got any little gems of wisdom? I would say you know, the, the classic phrase, you know, it does get better. <laughs> it does. It really, really does. As bad as it may look, it does get better. But also don't be afraid to take time off or take a break. You know, talk to your supervisors, talk to your friends, family. You don't need to go 24-7 and burn yourself out. It's sometimes very, very beneficial to just take a step back either take some time off completely from your PhD, take a week off, or maybe just from that project experiment, whatever it is that's really not going your way. I know I should have done that. I definitely should have done that. I chose to wallow in my failures and made myself even more sad. I think time away and being able to talk about the problems and issues that you're facing openly, I think they'll really, really help you. So don't bottle it up, talk about it. I think that's good advice, not just for PhDs as well. Yes, in general, for everything. Yeah. And I think there's a difference between being determined and repeatedly hitting yourself over the head with something that's not working. Like, Yeah, exactly. You need either some outside eyes coming in or you need a fresh mind. So time away, a break, I think will do you a lot of good. Thank you for that. I think that's just a lovely little thing that needs to be out there in the universe right now. Absolutely. So this is a very specific area of research. How have you ended up in it? What was your path? Say from high school, what did high school Jared plan versus where he's ended up now? Well, completely different. I mean, <laughs> my career path was definitely pretty wavy and windy. I initially, well, I, I knew that I always wanted to work with animals in some way, like a lot of people, I think wanted to become a vet, a veterinarian. So I wanted to do lots of science-y subjects in, in high school and then sort of transition that into uni as well. So I was, I remember enrolling myself when I was 12 or 13 or something like that in, the, in our school science club, which sounds super nerdy. I mean, it kind of was, but it was also really cool. <laughs> we got to do cool experiments and dissect lots of animals like frogs and sharks and stingrays and Super, super cool stuff like that. I was really, really lucky. So that sort of even more honed that sort of desire to, to work in science or biology or with animals in some sort of way. So I then went to University of Melbourne and did my Bachelor of Science there, hoping to get into the vet degree eventually. But it's sort of a, a good thing and a bad thing about the system that we have in Australia. It's quite broad on what you can learn. So you don't have to sort of decide what you want to do as soon as you turn 18. You can chop and change. You can change your career. You can change your focus and majors and minors and all of that as much as you want. And that can be really helpful for people. And it can also open your mind into what you 
didn't think was something you wanted to do, but really is. And that's exactly what happened to me. So I wanted to do vet and then I changed my mind and I was thinking, oh, maybe I can do physiotherapy. That's actually quite cool. Oh, actually, maybe not. And then I changed to neuroscience, which was something I never thought I would really enjoy either, but I really did. And then I changed again to reproductive biology. So I changed my career path about four times in my undergraduate degree. But as soon as I had those reproductive biology units in my final year, I think it was, I I sort of knew that was what I really, really enjoyed. And after that, I did a graduate diploma and then a PhD in reproductive biology. And I haven't really looked back that much since. (laughs) So even my PhD, the, the topic wasn't what I first thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be something completely different, but in talking to my supervisors and then they told me about the menstruating mouse, my jaw dropped and I said, okay, let's do it. <laughs> and yeah, very thankful that I have. How long did your undergrad take? Uh, so that was, I did that full time for three years. Felt like a lot longer because I changed so many times on different subjects that I wanted to do. But yeah, that was just the standard three years. And then one year graduate diploma and then the four and a bit year PhD. That's pretty good fitting all that in that period of time. It was a lot. <laughs> it was it was definitely a lot. What is it about reproductive biology that sort of like floats your boat? Floats my boat. I think it was something that I just underestimated. A lot of people, it was probably also down to the lecturers that we had in that final year in that, in that subject. It was one of the sort of pioneers of in vitro fertilization, IVF, came in to give us a lecture about what that is and his journey and where IVF can take you. And he was showing us these incredible videos of eggs being fertilized and then the embryos were growing in a dish in a lab, which absolutely just blew my mind. You know, you can grow someone in a, in a dish. <laughs> and it was very, it was just so futuristic and it just blew my mind. So as soon as I saw something like that and, you know, that little microscopic, you know, tenth of a millimeter sized egg turns into a whole person or a whole rhino whatever it is right it's it absolutely blew my mind and it was just so fascinating from that moment on it is pretty astonishing how it all starts and that we can do that in a lab we can do it in a lab and so so much comes from so little but also at the same time so much can go wrong so <laughs> that was also part of it so it was so fascinating to watch and then it was fast even more fascinating to hear about what goes on you know behind the scenes or you know what you don't see what's happening with the genes what's happening with all the dna where's it all going and what can go wrong so yeah it was just blew my mind (laughs) i am curious back in the day when we could go to parties and talk to people we didn't know what kind of reception does your work get from the average person the average person yes it's very different it's not a typical thing that (laughs) was not a very common job or field of research that's for sure so and it's also kind of a not obscure but there's you know there's a little bit of kind of stigma or something around talking about reproduction so it is met with a kind of a a happy smile but then like a, a very curious questioning sort of look at the same time so it's always met well it's just a lot of people don't feel as 
comfortable talking about reproduction than we should. So it is met positively. It's just a little bit, not uncomfortable, but it's just a little bit out of left field for, for a lot of people. So it's very unique and very weird and very niche, and especially for a guy to be studying menstruation as well. That's even more out there. But then again, you also get a lot of people that want to ask you a whole bunch of questions because you know so much about something that's so unspoken about. So it's also an opportunity that a lot of people can sort of learn a lot more, which um something I, I really enjoy. You know, I never thought I would enjoy talking about periods and teaching menstruation and things like that, but I really do. And, you know, it's part of sort of getting rid of rid, rid of that stigma or taboo-ness around talking about reproduction is to talk about it more. So Whenever I sort of tell people about what I'm doing and they don't really um, sort of know how to how to deal with it, I sort of try to make it a more approachable and digestible topic. So, yeah. I think that's a solid effort. And it's so odd because we are all the result of it. We are all the result of it, but we cannot really talk about it. Oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. Yeah, exactly. Have you got any particular questions that you've been asked that were either zingers or just just good ones? <laughs> I do get the occasional somebody asking me for some sort of medical advice. <laughs> oh, I've got this thing. Can we? <laughs> yeah, it's basically that. You know, you know, your friend is studying medicine, and it's just like I've got this rash here. What do you think? And you know, a lot of people get a lot a bit too comfortable too quickly. <laughs> so I do reiterate that I am a, I'm a doctor, but I'm not that type of doctor. I do the research labby stuff and then I leave the treatment to the actual medical doctors. So some people do ask some sort of interesting menstrual related questions. And I just have to sort of say, look, I'd rather not comment because I, I'm not a medical doctor. I can tell you what I know and what that is, but I couldn't tell you what to do about it really. <laughs> Okay, so it's more the TMI, so too much information kind of questions. That's probably the most common thing that happens, yeah. It's a bit TMI. Oh, people are wonderful. Clearly, like, we just need to have more good content out there so that... Oh, I'll tell you what, actually, there's a, there's a common one that I do get is that do periods sync? A lot of people out there I know think that they do. Sync as in, like, water? As in, yeah, so like, like if you're working with another female colleague, for example, or you're, or you're living with your sister, then your two menstrual cycles will sync at some point, and then you'll both have a period at the same time or within a day or something of each other. Yeah, there's a whole episode of the IT crowd about it. Yep. And there you go. <laughs> so a lot of people think that is a real phenomena, but I hate to break it to them. It's just very, very, very hard to prove that is exactly the case. So there's been a couple of big research um, surveys done. I think the largest one was in China a couple of years ago, 2018 from memory, where I think it was a couple of hundred women or maybe a few thousand tracked their cycles over this period of time, whatever it was, a couple of months. And what they found out was actually you're more likely to unsync than to sync. So and when the sinking does happen, it's really just sort of maths that sort of does it that way. They eventually will line up because every cycle is different. And if one woman has a 28-day cycle and another woman has a 29-day cycle, eventually they're going to line up and you will have a period on the same day. But it's not like within one month you're going to be synced, bang, done. 
So that's probably the most common one, I would say, other than the TMI stuff. That That's a reasonable one because like, there are entire TV episodes about the concept of the phenomenon. Exactly. And our mice, their, their menstrual cycles don't sink either. It would be lovely if they did. It would, it would make research so much easier, but they don't. <laughs> Each one is an individual. Everyone's an individual. They're all different. I thought you meant, do they sink? As in, like, if you put a period in water, will it go to the bottom? I was like, why is that? Like, people are curious about density? That's what you're saying. <laughs> yes, different type of sink. <laughs> Tell her, live on a different planet right now. So other than the IVF lecture, were there any other like key events that happened in your path that were real, like, aha uh-huh moments? I mean, obviously, you had a really awesome high school science program. Uh, that was very, very cool, that. I mean, I definitely remember having, this is probably 90% of people in Australia or even around the world will, would agree with me here, they had a terrible sex education in whether that be middle school, high school, wherever it was. And I remember um, it was, yeah, we were about 15 or four, maybe 14, something like that. And I remember going into this big, really big room with all the different classes in our grade. And then, you know, all the girls went one way and all the boys went one way. And we learned about boy things and they learned about girl things. And then that was kind of it. We didn't really have any crossover on what each other experiences. And I was kind of like, oh, I don't know. I was kind of hoping to learn a bit more rather than just like what happens to me. I want to happen. I want to sort of know what happens to everybody. And it was kind of, you know, pushed in a way that it was like, those are the girl issues. You know, you don't need to worry about them. And those are the girls to deal with. And the boys deal with their own boy things. And so essentially from there, I was kind of interested in reproductive biology without even really knowing it. And then combined with all that, those IVF lectures and everything, I think really pushed me very, very firmly into the reproductive biology field. Do you think there's any chance that the work you're doing could filter down into the education system or like be disseminated? Absolutely. So there's a couple of other people that I can think of. Well, one, one researcher comes to mind in, in Newcastle, for example, did a quite similar PhD in researching infertility, but then taking that in a completely different approach rather than going and doing all the lab stuff, going into sex education and reproductive health and looking at different technologies, like, you know, there's period tracking apps and there's a whole bunch of information out there and trying to figure out where everybody gets their information from, you know, where is the information on those apps coming from? Are they from medical professionals or are they just taking it from, you know, Wikipedia and WebMD and things like this? So along the way, I've sort of developed a lot of that understanding. So there is definitely the opportunity to sort of go down that route as well. And a lot of other researchers are, which is great because it's it's just so important. And it is, even today, it's still underserved and that doesn't help anybody. Absolutely. If we still can't talk about it, then that's quite a big issue, right? <laughs> Still makes us blush. Still makes us blush. Yeah, exactly. You bring up periods to a guy and it's just like the most awkward thing in the world. So, and it shouldn't be. Oh, and then back away quickly. Oh, we'll catch something. Pretty much. <laughs> Change the topic. Work quick, run away, smoke bomb. So there's definitely the opportunity to go down that route and a lot of people are, which is great. That's good. Another little bit of a kick the education system needs. Yes, it definitely needs it. What's something really cool about your work? Like what is the bit that helps you get up early in the morning and go hang out with the mice? (laughs) It's probably, there's a couple of things. I mean, 
One was that I never thought I would actually love teaching as much as I did. My mother is a teacher and she's been a teacher all her life. And I, you know, growing up and watching her teach and I'm just like, oh God, I don't know how you do that. You know, put up with students and there's complaints and they're annoying and all of this. And I get it now. (laughs) All of those things are still true, but there's so much more that I didn't sort of know about. So I really do like going into uni and talking to the students and teaching them stuff and sort of sharing my fascination with science with them. And that could be, you know, a lecture or a tutorial in uni, but it could be also like a blog post or or a podcast like this. So getting up and being able to like teach something really cool or like get someone really, really interested or fascinated in an aspect of science like I was is something that I really love. And there's also the cool stuff like working with liquid nitrogen, which is, of course, amazing and super scary, but super cool at the same time. Of course, there's a pun. Cool. Liquid nitrogen. Yep. That stuff's always, always going to be really fun and exciting. But I think for me, I really just love talking about and teaching the science. And that's, that's what gets me out of bed. And stuff like liquid nitrogen, like, no, it doesn't get old, but that's not going to be enough every yes, day. Yes, exactly. There's, <laughs> there's not enough liquid nitrogen for me to keep coming up every day to just go and sort of pour it on things and see if it cracks. <laughs> yeah. There's a limit to how many bananas. Yes, exactly. Or or rubber gloves, because of course, that's what we didn't do (laughs) in uni. Yeah, that's awesome. I love the the love for teaching. And it's not it's it's sort of not just teaching as well. I think it there's a lot of we, we can see it in the media now, right? There's a lot of science communication sort of issues and fake news and misinterpretations of data or fantasizing or fanaticizing a lot of things when there shouldn't be and there's a real shortage of sort of scientists in the media and doing proper science communication so science is very hard to understand it's very hard for me to understand and I've done it for like nine years so it's very hard to do correctly and sort of disseminate all of those very complex questions and topics that are going around and making them digestible so it's teaching but it's also sort of just communicating science in a more public forum as well. And hopefully we have a public who are warming up to listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's part of the challenge is, 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 you know, convincing someone of the opposite on what they're thinking. You know, if they're an anti-vaxxer, for example, convincing them to get a vaccine, you know, that's part of the challenge, but it's also very rewarding when something like that does happen. So I definitely love that. Yeah. The moment where it goes click. Yep. It happened. What advice would you give to a young person? Let's say they're listening to this and they're like, damn, reproductive biology. Like, yeah, I got that short change sex ed thing. Like, it sounds really cool. What advice would you give to them? If they were anything like me, I mean, then yeah, they've, and they're sort of really, really thinking about it. And um, I would absolutely encourage them to look into it more. If there's any counselors at their school that may, maybe that they could talk to to something like that. That could just be a health counselor or it could be a, you know, a university counselor about potential options on where you can do something like a reprobiology unit. And yeah, people think we know a lot about our reproduction and our biology in general, but the truth is we we really don't. We really need to know a lot more. So if you're interested in it, I am going to push you hard (laughs) to come into this field because we need you. Men in particular are very hesitant to sort of enter this field as well because of like what I said before, it's kind of a bit taboo and there's like this weird stigma about reproductive biology and things like that. So if you're interested in it, just follow it and just immerse yourself. So 
either talk to yeah somebody at your uh, teachers at your school or hey if you listen to this podcast and you want to reach out to me then please do so be happy to point you into the right direction so i'm going to encourage you 100 percent to come into this field come join me and you never know what you'll uncover and what awesome changes you could make to people's lives and the people not yet born as well exactly and there's so many different routes that you can go from studying something like reproductive biology or really just stem in in general you know you don't have one fixed career path there are lots of different options so don't think that you have to spend all your time sitting in a lab doing experiments you know there's lots of different things that you can do with it it's very true is there any way that adults can be involved in your research like if there's people listening and they're like that's really cool like do you ever need shout outs for people to do something (laughs) for my research no but there's a lot of other people um doing research in like our sort of sister labs that are always needing people to participate in it's incredibly incredibly difficult to find willing participants to take part in reproductive studies probably for quite obvious reasons there's very very private issues and people don't really want to talk about them or be judged and thinking that they're not normal you know things like that so we need to completely stop that mindset and we need to talk about it more we need to study it more so there's a lot of people whether that be taking part in just you know tracking your cycle using a couple of different apps or different methods you know which one works the best or taking part in surveys everything is going to increase our understanding of menstruation for example you know the more we talk about it, the more we study it, the more things are going to improve. We need to stop talking in metaphors about things like periods. So, you know, we can only look at the, we don't need to look back only a couple of months ago with the government's milkshake ad about consent and how everything is told in metaphors. And that was just totally ridiculous, right? Like it completely missed the point. We need to talk about things openly and honestly. So if you're willing to talk to researchers or reach out to me, like I said before, for the students as well, if you're an adult wanting to take part in, in studies or surveys, please reach out and I can point you in the right direction again and we can finally get rid of some of that stigma around reproductive biology. Fantastic. And if you've got any links, I'm happy to obviously promote them, put them in show notes, etc. And obviously it sounds like the surveys and things, they don't have to be invasive. Absolutely not, no. So there's plenty out there on on there's different levels. You know, there's you could be just filling out a survey talking about your own sex education and your own sort of menstrual health literacy and what you understand and where you found it from and things like that that could be you know very uninvasive at all and it's non-identifying can be completely anonymous so there's a lot out there that you can take part in and some will take five minutes you know like a like a survey some studies might sign you up for a couple of weeks or a couple of months so there's a lot of different approaches to this research so yeah don't be afraid if something like you know, being identified because a lot of it you you don't need to. So something like survey might be an option for you. Sounds awesome. Are there any myths that we haven't touched on that you'd like to take this opportunity to bust that are in this, just the broad area at all? Ooh, that I haven't already touched on. I mean, the menstrual cycle syncing is definitely got to be number one. <laughs> That's, I can wholeheartedly say that is not true. A lot of people as well, I mean, this can almost turn into a sort of sexual health class here, (laughs) you know, just because I'm on the pill, for example, I can't get an STI or I can't get pregnant. You know, it's very unlikely that you won't, will get pregnant, but that nothing is a hundred percent. So you should still use 
other forms of contraception as well. And especially with STIs, the pill does nothing for that. Some people also think that if you use, uh, you know, like the pullout method, for example, that's a method of contraception. That's an absolute lie. <laughs> it definitely is not. There are very a lot of effective ways of birth control out there that you should talk about with medical professionals again. So there's a couple more I could probably think of. I think how common infertility or subfertility is in the general population. So I'll ask you, how common or do you think infertility is? Like one out of how many couples would experience infertility? I know it's way more than I think it is. It definitely is. Um, <laughs> I couldn't give you a number, but I, I know it's common. Yeah, it's pretty common. So depending where you read, it's one in five to one in six couples. So 20% of all couples will suffer from infertility or subfertility in some way and some point in their life. So a lot of people think, hey, I'm young, I'm going to be fine. It's statistically, it might not be the case. So it affects a lot of people. Yeah, it's very common and it can present in so many different ways as well, which is, you know, why we need more research about it to sort of treat it and understand why it's happening so frequently. And for example, you know, fertility declines for women in their early 30s. So if you're 30 to 33, I think is like the early stages of your fertility quite rapidly declining. So a lot of people, yeah, think that they're young and fine. <laughs> the answer is, you know, they may not be. So infertility is a lot more common than you think it is. And I think that's really important to talk about because it's something a lot of people feel deep shame about. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, how could it happen? There's a lot of sort of, again, stigma, stigma about not being able to have a baby. And again, a lot of that focus and I don't want to say blame, but the focus it gets, sort of gets put on the woman as well because, you know, she's the one that gets pregnant. But men also suffer from infertility and we don't really talk about that anywhere near as much as we do about women's infertility. So we sort of, in a weird way, focus on, oh, well, what's wrong with the woman, you know? And we need to talk about it more. We need to study it more. And hopefully we can convince some of those younger listeners or the, the adult listeners to, to come and join me in this field and we can learn how to treat infertility a lot better. And then we can have more people like you on podcasts sharing the good word. That's it. That's exactly it. <laughs> we'll just create a little sea of people and suddenly no one will be left to be embarrassed. Great. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Is there anything we haven't touched on that you would like to share? I might just give like a, a shout out to my my friend and my PhD supervisor, Dr. Nadia Bellafiore. She's actually the one that discovered the menstruation in the spiny mouse. So she's yeah an, incredi an incredible woman, found this an, an amazing discovery and is really, you know, at the head of a lot of this research and really, really passionate about women's reproductive health and rights and things like that. And I know it's, you know, she's going for a very tough time right now of trying to manage the research on her one-year-old baby. So that's a lot of stress. And so I'd like to, you know, give her a big virtual high five, a hug to Nadia and say, please keep on going. We, we need more people like you. And that was actually going to be my next question is to have a shout out. So all the listeners, all the listeners, we're giving virtual high fives to Dr. Nadia for being awesome for discovering the menstruating mouse and then for getting Dr. Jared into the whole thing as well. That's it. I've been inducted. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're trying to get your people. Exactly. It's, it's a bit of a pyramid scheme. <laughs>
Okay, I think that's everything. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Jared. This has been very educational. I think there will have been a lot of blushing whilst listening, which is good. Which is good, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Not a problem. Thanks so much for having me. I had a great time. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, you're an absolute gem of a human being and you should head over to avidresearch.com.au, sign up for our amazing email newsletter and get all the download on the upcoming episodes and maybe even get a bit of a sneak peek about what's coming next. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you should definitely subscribe. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and even Google these days. Thanks.